Blog Talk Radio.
and how it was relevant because because it really is because uh, 240 years later we're still locked in that same dance with the government. We're still doing the same thing that uh, that we're doing before. That uh, it just doesn't seem like we uh, uh, like we. Like we're gonna, like we're ever gonna get out of this, uh, at least in a good way. <clears throat> so we'll talk about that. Uh, we'll start talking about that in just a minute. Uh, I'd also like to, uh, I'd like to remind folks that Battle Road, uh, Battle Road is the <coughs> BattleRoadUSA.com is the uh, the parent of Battle Road Radio. And uh, Battle Road is dedicated uh, to bringing you the absolute best in uh, as many uh, disciplines uh, as we can offer, including uh, handgun, shotgun, carbine, uh, things like uh, combat tracking with John Hurt of Cheer Group LC, uh, medical uh Instruction with Caleb Causey at Lone Star Medics. Uh, we have uh, extended uh, uh, precision rifle sniper classes with uh, the real uh, with real shooters who have been there and done that. They'll get our instructing it. Uh, stalking and camouflage, land navigation, beef and small game processing. Uh, you name it, and we'll run it here at Battle Road. What we're getting ready to do right now, though, is kind of a uh, kind of a fun diagnostic test, and that's that's where uh, we take <clears throat> about 100 140 runners, and we have them navigate a four and a half mile looping trail with eight shooting stations along the way for rifle and just between each of the stations. <clears throat> this is uh, this event is not d- designed as an instructional event, as in uh, we're not going to be giving you instruction. We're going to be teaching you how to do stuff. This is a diagnostic event. This is one, this is an event for you to saddle up, gear up, and go through this course and see how well you do. See how well your shooting skills, your stamina, and your gear all work together in order for you to be successful. And uh, it really does need to be that way. You need to, everything needs to work together in order for you to be successful. Yes. And then this is only four and a half miles. I know a lot of people talk about uh, uh Preparing for uh, end of the world situations, and they say they're going to they're going to put their backpack on and they're going to hike out into the mountains and live there, and uh, and that's how they're going to survive. Well, before you do that, before you uh, load up and head out to the mountains, why don't you come give this a test? Why don't you come and see if that uh, backpack that you bought. Uh, is going to work right. Going to rub a bloody blister on your back. See if those boots are working for you. See if that uh, mag carrier is going to let you access your magazine 
uh, while you're wearing the rest of your gear. If you can, if you can safely and accurately draw your pistol while you're wearing all your gear, and you're going to be shooting wearing the gear too, which is something most ranges are not going to allow you to do. They don't want. They don't. You're very nervous when you show up, <coughs> and you start wearing gear uh, at the range while you're shooting. They don't. They don't like that. It, uh, it makes them nervous. But you can do it here. So, so make sure that you're putting this on your calendar. It's going to be a weekend after this, April 11th, 2015. Uh, start out at uh, uh, 7 a.m. We'll get here and get uh, everybody out and ready. We'll have a safety briefing about 8 o'clock, and we will start uh, shooting runners across the line. So, uh, I think it's something that you really will enjoy. You'll get a T-shirt uh, and a meal with it. Nothing special this year. Probably going to be hot dogs and chili and stuff like that. Uh, every year we do something different. Uh, there probably won't be a lot of prizes this year. Everybody got uh, everybody who was uh, temporarily unemployed uh, got uh, picked up jobs and contracts, and so there hasn't been a lot of time to. Uh, shop around for sponsors and stuff like that. You know what? We could really use somebody who knew something about that to assist us in this. And I say this because, uh, well, I guess about six or seven months ago, I was looking at an event that was kind of like ours. It was a two-day event. Uh, and I think that there were, I don't know, maybe a total of 300 people there. And, uh, they received $300,000, over $300,000 in uh, sponsored prize money. We're going to have 140 runners, and uh, and it's just one day, but there's still no reason that we shouldn't be able to, uh, uh, as big as this thing's getting, then we shouldn't be able to uh, finagle some prize money for uh, for the runners so we can have some nifty prizes, a nice prize table and stuff like that. It's not why we do it, and it's not why the majority of the people that come here do the event. They do the event because they want, they want to test themselves. They want to test their gear. Uh, but it would certainly be nice to have uh, something like that. If you're interested in helping uh, helping Battle Road with that or something, uh, go ahead and contact me. You can, the, my contact information is at the beginning of the show. Or you can go to battleroadusa.com and uh, uh, send me an entry on the uh, uh, the uh, contact sheet there. Uh, <clears throat> okay. Uh, uh, as well as uh, as well as let me look at uh, let me look at the, the Battle Road website real quick because I want to. Uh, give you a quick list of the dates of the upcoming dates that we have uh, and the events that we're having because uh, you know me, I can't talk and uh, type at the same time because I want to uh, make sure that you have uh, an opportunity to come and train with us. Uh, We love the folks that that come out and work with us. They end up becoming family and uh, and we are blessed 
to have a large family like that and uh, and have folks that uh, come out and train with us and then stay and become regular members of the family and uh, become and 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 take courses on a regular basis. And they don't do it uh, just because they like us or or we're their friends. They do it because the training is quality training, and uh, uh, and we've had several people who you know come to uh, uh, to training events and said, "Wow, I'm, I'm really glad I, glad I came because this is what I was looking for: the place where I feel comfortable, the place where I feel safe, and uh, and I was very happy with the instruction. So, uh, and I think that you will be too. All right, April 11th is the uh, the zombie biathlon and uh we got a couple of new uh, uh obstacles this year we've got the uh the zip line where you run across uh the a stock tank about this five or six feet off the water uh barely missing being grabbed and pulled in water uh uh, we've got some great uh, auction, which they almost all are, because uh, for those of you that uh, have uh, that have engaged in shooting, you understand quite rapidly that you very seldom ever get a chance to to pick out a good, comfortable shooting position. Uh, a lot of times, it's with you laying flat on your back, upside down, looking, uh, uh, holding your rifle eight inches off the ground and shooting uh, back so that whoever is shooting at you uh, won't be shooting so accurately. Uh, very seldom do you get to determine your shooting position, and very seldom is it a uh, a nice, steady, uh, pre-planned position. It's going to be kind of somewhat awkward. So, it's good for you to get used to having to shoot in awkward positions, having to learn how to cant your rifle shot high to the magazine side, right? So <clears throat> that is uh, April 11th. April 25th and 26th, we've got the Ghost of Goliad, Fundamentals of Rifle uh, Weekend. This is our, uh, this is our really good class that teaches you two solid days of rifle fundamentals. And when I say fundamentals, I'm not talking about the basics or baby class. It's in the baby class, all right? This is a fundamentals class. This is the stuff that you would learn if you hung around shooting with your uh, with your dad and your grandfather and your uncle for uh, for 20 years. You'd learn how to do this. You'd learn how to you'd learn all these techniques. But we don't want you to wait that long. We want to give it to you now so you can start honing them. And learning to shoot to the standards uh, of a Texas rifleman right away. There shouldn't be any reason that uh, once you have these skills, these techniques, that you shouldn't be able to apply them and become a uh, four-minute or better shooter. By four minutes, I mean you should be able to uh, put ten rounds into a four-inch square at 100 yards in 60 seconds. With no difficulty, with no difficulty, all right. And I know a lot of people. Uh, I, I can already hear them in my head. Oh man, that's easy. That's easy. I can do that. I can. I can. Oh, that's easy. Well, listen. I'm going to tell you that I show up 
that uh, maybe one out of 25, one out of 30, one out of 35 or 40 can actually shoot to four minutes or better when they arrive. Uh, a lot of people, and we, we do a diagnostic during the uh, during the Ghost of Gilead courses, we'll, do, we'll start off the course with a diagnostic test to see what type of a shooter you are, and we can determine if you're a 100-yard shooter, 200-yard, 300-yard, or 400-yard shooter right off the bat. And that's by seeing if you can place three rounds into a human-sized silhouette at 100, 200, 300, and 400 yards on a uh, uh, scaled-down target at 25 meters. Can, then good for you. But like I said, I've been doing it for over a decade, and most people, the majority of them, cannot even keep three rounds on the target on a human-sized silhouette at 100 yards. That's just the way it is. Uh, no matter how good you think you are, no matter if that deer looked like it was 250 yards away when it was really 75, uh, this will show you. This will show you what your skill level is, and it will give you the skills and techniques to improve your uh, uh, your shooting abilities. <clears throat> uh, most people go to the range. And when they get to the range, they'll shoot, uh, you know, they'll shoot uh, 5, 10, 15, 20, 25 rounds uh, at a bullseye. And they really, they're really not too sure what they should be doing while they're there at the range, other than making, other than ensuring that the firearm is functioning. Well, we're going to teach you the things you need to do, how you can teach yourself, how you can... Uh, how you can ensure that you never go to the range again without gathering useful data. Because without going to, without gathering data at the range, data that you understand how to use, it's a wasted trip. Yeah, you might as well, uh, you might as well stand in your back and just uh, shoot a bunch of rounds into the air. Uh, we're going to teach you how to correctly zero your rifle. Uh, we'll teach you the uh, the standard shooting positions, how to use your sling, how to execute the shot uh, by a very uh, important set of steps, uh, how to determine your natural point of aim, tell you what it is, tell you how to determine it, and tell you how to shift your natural point of aim onto the target. This is very important because there is a place your rifle wants to shoot, and there's a place that you want to shoot. And it's very important that both of those places are the same place, right? So we're going to teach you what it is and why it's important and how to ensure that the place your rifle is pointing and the place you want to shoot are, are actually going to be the same place. Uh, we'll teach you about inches, minutes, and clicks. And that's all the, the voodoo, all the, uh, the mysterious stuff that goes on when you start jacking with the knobs uh, on your scope and on your sights and stuff like that. We'll teach you how to do it correctly, what it means, so you'll have a good understanding of it. And then we'll start running you through some drills. Like I said, this isn't a baby course. We're going we're gonna to have you shooting from multiple positions with magazine changes uh, on multiple targets under time constraints. This is something that 
This is something that you're going to enjoy. Something that's going to make you a better shooter. Something that's going to put you on the path to becoming a Texas rifleman. So that is April 25th and 26th. On May 9th, uh, Battle Road is going to run our fighting shotgun course. It's a one-day course. It's inexpensive. Uh, It's a one-day course to teach you how to uh, run your home defense shotgun correctly. Everybody I know has a shotgun that they're using for their uh, for their home defense, and that is great. Uh, it's really hard to get a better firearm for home defense, uh, almost no matter where you are. If you're even if you're out of the middle of nowhere or you're in an apartment complex, a shotgun is really going to be one of your best bets for home defense. We're going to talk to you about how to set it up, what kind of shotguns uh, are good. Uh, we're going to teach you how to uh, do combat reloads, how to uh, get the most out of your shotgun, how to fire uh, uh, two to three rounds per second. Uh, we're going to teach you about weapon retention, how to maintain control of your firearm and defend it uh, in close quarters. We're going to sight in your shotguns with slugs at uh, 50 meters uh, and a lot more, as much as we can cram into this day. You're going you're gonna to really be glad that you did it. Uh, on May 30th and 31st, we'll run another edition of the Ghost of Goliath. On June 6th and 7th, we're going to have a two-day pistol course. And the way I've set it up is... Uh, I have the two separate classes running back-to-back. We've got the uh, pistol craft class, which is our uh, intro class. And when I say intro class, I just mean uh, it's a class that we want you to take with us before you take other classes with us, other uh, handgun courses, or provide us with uh, uh, with certification from some class so that we'll know that you... Uh, that you at least have the uh, the uh, the basic work done. However, this isn't a basic class. It's not a baby class. Uh, uh, Mark uh, Martinez, who's going to be running this specific class, uh, he's been uh, he has been taking courses and working uh, uh, for 20 years with the sheriff's department, and he's been. Uh, uh, who knows how many courses he's taking? He's got almost 2,000 hours of uh, these courses. And our intro class uh, is what he would consider uh, an advanced course, uh, where he'd take one uh, on the uh, sheriff's department dime. So, so it's not a baby course, but we're going that's the pistol craft course. And we're going to butt that one up to our fighting handgun course. And, uh, you can take one or both uh, of the classes, and uh, so I've got it set up so you can register for one or both. And then on June 27th and 28th, we'll have uh, the next evolution of the Ghost of Goliad Fundamentals of Rifle. Now, I forgot to mention in the beginning when I first talked about that, the uh, not only are we teaching you fundamentals of rifle marksmanship, we're cramming a bunch of other stuff in there, too. We're mostly concerned with your rifle marksmanship, but we are going to add other things in with it. One of the things we're going to add 
is we're going to make sure that you and your family members, we want you to bring your family with you. We want you to bring your wife and your kids, and it's a perfect way to get them instruction. If you've been wanting them to to learn how to safely and efficiently handle a rifle for a while, this is your chance. Uh, we're going to charge you, or we're going to charge uh, the adult males $80. We're going to charge the adult females 40 or we're going to charge the minor children $20 a piece. And you're going to thank us for that because uh, you're not going to have to do anything except shoot, except listen to what we say and shoot. We're going to take care teaching your wife and your kids. That way you don't have to be trying to constantly say, no, no, honey, like do it like this or like this. And she doesn't have to keep telling you, I am doing it that way. <laughs> we'll take care of that. You don't have to hear that, and she doesn't have to say it, okay? The other thing is, as I said, this is it's just two days of rifle safety, of firearm safety. It's something that we don't, I guess we don't promote as much, but it's two solid days of rifle safety. Uh, you're going to leave here after those two days with a really rock-solid foundation in rifle safety. And that's really important for for everyone, but certainly important for new shooters. Uh, We're going to uh, really uh, drill this into your heads about how safe you need to be with a firearm. We run an extremely safe course. Uh, when you're here, we want we want run an extremely safe course. Uh, and uh, the other thing is, is while you're here, we're going to talk to you about the history of Texas as it concerns the Texas uh, War for Independence. We want to talk to you about the Texas War for Independence. And who was there, what they did, why they did it. And we're going to do that by, in some ways by paralleling it with the American Revolutionary War because they had a lot of things in common. I mean, they had a great deal in common. And if you want to find out what it all was, then come to one of the events. Uh, in addition to the Texas and American Revolutionary War history, we're going to talk to you about the... Uh, we're going to introduce topics concerning self-reliance. We're not going to teach you uh, self-reliance techniques. What we're going to do is is introduce you to some of the most important aspects of self-reliance and prepping. We're going to talk to you about things, to things about... Uh, like uh, <clears throat> having uh, a, a good water prep, uh, understanding water prep, water purification, uh, food preps, energy preps, uh, uh, security preps, shelter preps. We're gonna. Uh, these are just like five-minute introductions, not to not to teach you something uh, about them, other than. It's like uh, 
it's like saying, hey, guys, I want you to listen to this. I want you to understand why it's important to have water, why it's important to have safe, clean drinking water. And we'll do five minutes on that. Uh, We're going to talk to you about uh, five minutes about why it's important to have a buffer of food, more than the two or three days that you might usually have in your home, your uh, in your residence, because uh, anything and everything can and always will go wrong. So we're going to talk to you about that. So that's what you're getting in addition to the Texas and American Revolutionary War history and uh, in addition to the two days of uh, firearm safety, in addition to the main course of rifle marksmanship. So, bang! You've got a, that's a, you've got a big uh, bang for your buck there. So make sure that you, you put those dates on your calendar. That's uh, April 25th and 6th. May 30th and 31st, and June 27th and 28th. Now, and also, if you have a uh, if you have a group that you would like to bring, we'll be glad to talk to you about Fundamentals Weekend for you and your group. We'll be glad to do that. We've done that before for uh, for different uh, self reliance for different prepping groups. Uh, we've done it before for uh, uh, different uh, militia groups that wanted to get uh, everybody in their group, on the same page uh, very quickly uh, and use the use this course to do it, uh, it's a great way to do this. It's a great way to get everybody in your group up to speed or on the same page uh, in a two-day period. And we will do it. You don't have to do it. You don't have to listen to anybody uh, anybody's complaining or anything else like that. We will do it for you. Okay? <clears throat> So be sure and contact us if you want us to do that uh, special group. And we'll do that for just about any class that you want. Uh, if you want to have, bring your group and say, look, I've got uh, I've got a dozen guys, and what we'd like is we'd like uh, two days of patrolling techniques with an introduction to, uh, to tracking, then we'll set that up. We'll set that up for you and your group, and we'll run that course for you. Uh, you name it, and we will be glad to set it up. We do stalking and camouflage courses. We do land navigation. Uh, we do patrolling techniques, including night movement and stuff like that. So we've got a course coming up uh, with uh, Caleb Causey of Lone Star Medics and John Hurt of Tier Group. It'll be a three-day full immersion class where you'll, you'll show up here, you'll gear up, We'll head out on patrol for three days, and during those three days, you'll get uh, courses in patrolling techniques, uh, movement to contact, breaking contact, night movement, uh, tracking as a uh, as a group in a hostile environment, uh, and a ton of medical uh, instruction as well from two of the top guys in the nation. That'll be, uh, I believe that'll be in September. Just keep going. Go to the website, uh, babbleroadusa.com, uh, in order to uh, to get more information. Okay. Uh, let's start talking about uh, the powder alarms. Okay. 
we talked last week about about the the events that preceded the American Revolutionary War, the events of April 19, 1775. These are the the things that preceded that, and uh, uh, that was uh, uh, the uh, uh, the things like the uh, the Stamp Act and the Intolerable Acts and the uh, Boston Tea Party, all of these things which together cause a great deal of friction between the American colonists and the British government because the American colonists felt that they were being treated as sub-citizens. You have to remember the American colonists were not they were not Americans. They were British citizens. Uh and were expecting to be governed under the British Constitution. When they didn't receive that, uh, and they began to receive what what they felt was unfair treatment, I feel it too. I mean, I, you read it and you'll see it. It's unfair treatment. Then they began to uh, protest in a lot of different ways. They they tried to uh, uh, to get around paying the taxes. They tried to uh, they tried to do a lot of things, and uh, and that in turn caused the government uh, to uh, does not like that uh, they feel uh, is violating their rights. They protest and and their protest caused the government to do more, uh, to enact more punitive measures, to treat the colonists more roughly, and uh, and it begins an us-and-them uh, type of mentality. And, and that's bad for for everybody. Uh, so that's what we were talking about uh, last week. Uh, eventually, because of the uh, the tea taxes and and the intolerable acts, the colonists uh, staged several protests, and including the Boston Tea Party. This caused the government to to try and knuckle down even harder uh, because they wanted to show the colonists who the boss was. The colonists wanted the government to be the boss, but they wanted their rights under the British Constitution, and because they had been doing things a certain way, for well over a hundred years, there you've got to remember they were British citizens uh, living under the the Union Jack, uh, but but a great many of them had been in the Americas for over a hundred years without ever traveling back to England, and this this can cause 
uh, a feeling of separation on both sides. It can cause uh, the the parent government to feel like these are these people are foreigners, and it can cause the people being governed to feel like they are being governed by uh, by an absentee landlord. Uh, they had always governed themselves under their charters. And when the British government stepped in and said, you're going you're gonna to toe the line now, and we're actually, in order to ensure that you toe the line, we're going to send troops, and they're going to occupy your cities and towns. And uh, you're going to put them up in your houses. You're going to feed them. Uh, and we're going to, uh, at different times, we're going to go around and do searches, and we're going to do them at, uh, upon our whim. If you look at the rights that, that we have today, the reason we have a lot of these rights are because of those events. Uh, if you look at, uh, at some of the amendments that we have, amendments against quartering troops uh, in our houses, I mean, when was the last time anybody had to quarter troops in their houses? Well, they did uh, in 1770s. They did have to quarter troops. And that's why it's in the Constitution. They did get uh, government forces uh, coming to their homes, their residences, and businesses, and kicking in the doors and searching, quote, without a warrant. Now, back then, the warrant was approximately the same as it is now. And that is, you know, a piece of paper that says, we believe that so-and-so has committed some crime or has some stolen property, etc., and we're going to go to their home and look for this, uh, this said stolen property. Well, without that, they were going to people's homes and searching, quote, without a warrant. That's what's why it's in our Bill of Rights, the uh, to have a reasonable expectation of uh, of being held safe from unreasonable searches and seizures. <clears throat> so the government was uh, was react. The people were reacting to the government. The government began reacting to the people, and that's why. That's why in the, in the show notes I call it the deadly dance. Because it is a deadly dance. It, it is two groups that are uh, that are uh, interacting with each other. And just as in a dance where when your partner takes a step forward, you take a step back. Uh, and then you take a step forward, and they take a step back. Just as in that dance, the 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 way that the citizens interact with government, uh, it's the same thing, the same way. <clears throat> so, so we'll talk about now the powder alarm, and what is the what is the powder alarm? Well, it was the it was a really a very major popular uh reaction to the removal of the gunpowder from uh one of the uh colonial 
storage houses, powder houses, or they call them a magazine. Under orders of uh, General Thomas Gage, who was the royal the of Massachusetts, uh, a large section of the colonies. And uh, September 1st, 1774. <clears throat> and talk about how it happened. And we talked about already that uh, beginning around 1772, uh, there were 13 colonies, 13 separate colonies. And listen, these colonies were not – it wasn't like one big city across the eastern seaboard like it is now. There were 13 separate independent colonies. They each had their own rules, their own way of doing things. They each had become, had been, been established under their own independent charters and – uh, many of which were uh, were religious charters, and uh, so some of them were Quakers, some of them uh, were Protestants. There were there were all different types, and let's let's very quickly talk about this too, because when you see references uh, in the Constitution to freedom, not uh, uh, from religion, but freedom of religion. The reason religion was talked about is not because the colonists didn't want religion uh, in their lives, in their governments. It's because they didn't want a specific religion to become all-powerful and to uh, 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 and to become the uh, like the top governmental religion. Uh, they wanted to make sure that, that, that no uh, no certain religion uh, became the one that everybody had to bow down to. Uh, each one wanted to be able to maintain their own religious freedoms to worship in the manner that they wanted to. So it wasn't that they didn't want religion. They just to be in charge. They, the Protestants didn't want the, uh, the Shakers to be in charge. It was... Uh, it was... Uh, it wasn't a freedom from religion. It was a freedom of religion. All right? So these colonies had, uh, they all had their own charters. They were all working independently uh, for a good many years. And sometimes there was, you know, there were grievances between the colonies as the troubles began with the uh, Massachusetts Bay colonies, what happened was the other colonies saw what could possibly happen to them. When the British government began uh, applying punitive measures against the Massachusetts Bay colony in the Boston the folks in Boston and the harbor there, closing the harbor and stuff like that. The rest of the colony said, whoa, wait a minute. This is, yeah, that colony, they're not doing it to us, but they could. And if they did, what would we do? If they did, could we expect assistance from some of our fellow colonies? And 
if we would expect it, then we need to be ready to render it. So the events uh, from 7072 onward were actually events that strengthened the bond between the 13 colonies. Even though the majority of these events were being applied to the Massachusetts Bay Colony uh, and to uh, Boston, it made all of the colonies fearful that they could become the target of punitive measures. And one of the one of the best ways to try and prevent that would be to present a united front. <clears throat> so, uh, punitive measures because of the Intolerable Act, the Stamp Act, etc., because of the the British reaction to the gas fee affair, uh, and I don't think that we talked about that last week, but uh, the gas fee affair was uh, was where the HMS Gaspee, which was uh, a British customs schooner, uh, it was enforcing the anti-smuggling uh, act, and... Uh, you know, what it was doing is it was, you know, you had the folks that were coming in smuggling all types of goods. And we talked about how the way that the British government wanted it set up is they did not want the colonists doing business with any other countries. They wanted the colonists to harvest raw goods, put those raw goods on the ships, timber, uh, uh, furs, uh, precious metals, anything that they could, uh, food, send them back to England. England would in turn take those raw materials, manufacture processed goods, cloth, uh, uh, lumber, uh, you name it, everything, iron, uh, and sell them back to the colonies. So they could buy the raw materials cheaply, and then they, they had a large ready market to sell their goods in the colonies. That was also why we talked about one of the reasons that the that the government did not want the colonists uh, moving further inland, because if they moved further inland, where they were, uh, where it was hard for them to uh, uh, to get stuff from uh, uh, from the uh, from the government by way of uh, the coastline, then they would start. Uh, Manufacturing their own goods, and the government didn't want that. They wanted them to uh, uh, to main to they wanted them to maintain British uh, finished goods. In order to do this, they had to enact uh, smuggling uh, laws prohibiting smuggling, and then those laws had to be enforced. All right. So that's where the gas fee comes in. The gas fee was one of the ships. It was a customs enforcement ship. It would it would ply it it would go up and down the coast, uh, uh, looking for smugglers. And the the customs service in the North American colonies, uh, 18th century, it had a pretty dang violent history. Uh, and the British government, the Treasury, which was in charge of the customs 
really didn't do a whole lot to fix any of the problems because, you know, we were thousands of miles away across the ocean. Uh, Britain uh, had been at war for a long time with the French and Indian Wars and a lot of other wars, and uh, and it wasn't trying to – it wasn't in, as deeply involved in the business of the American colonies as it could have been. So they were left to operate kind of on their own. But now at the end of the Seven Years' War, following the uh, – by England, uh, several of the ministries that had been formed in England uh, tried to kind of correct this and, and tried to implement reforms to achieve more effective control uh, over the economies in the colonies and to get more uh, revenue by enforcing the uh, these regulations, you know, of, of not buying from other countries cheaper. <clears throat> and, uh, and like I said, it's, it's kind of violent. You know, people get violent when you try and take the stuff that they're smuggling. I mean, smugglers have all have always uh, been willing to defend their goods. Uh, so what ended up happening was the the Admiralty there in New England in Marblehead, they purchased six of the Marblehead sloops uh, and schooners. And, uh, and then they uh, uh, used these as uh, revenue ships. Uh, and then early in 1772, uh, sailed into uh, 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 Narragansett Bay to aid in enforcement collection uh, because uh, Rhode Island had a really uh, good reputation for smuggling and even trading with the enemy during wartime. Uh, the uh, the customs officials there, which was uh, uh, Lieutenant uh, William Duddingston uh, at the time was uh, captain of the uh, Gatsby. He very quickly antagonized all of the merchants there in that colony. And on June 9th, the Gatsby was in hot pursuit of uh, a packet boat, the Hannah. A packet boat is just a smaller boat, and it's smaller because uh, the packet boats would sail right up onto the beach right up onto the coastline and unload there. You know, the larger ships couldn't. You know, they have to stay uh, uh, moored either at uh, uh, in some kind of a port or they have to remain offshore, offloading the smaller ships, and, and those ships were a run aground. But the packet boats, they even sail directly up to the coastline. Well, the gas fee was in hot pursuit of one of the packet boats, and it ran aground uh, in the shallow water on the north western side of the bay and the crew was unable to get the boat free and the rising tide uh, because the tides there uh, in a lot of New England ports were, were pretty noticeable tides with very uh, very high high tide marks and very low low tide marks when the high tide came in it, it quite probably could have freed the ship but before that uh, a band of the Providence Sons of Liberty rode out to confront the ship's crew before they could get away. At, the, at dawn on the 10th, 
they actually boarded the ship. And the, the crew put up a little bit of resistance, and Lieutenant uh, Dunnington was actually shot and wounded. And they set fire to the vessel, and the vessel burned to the waterline. Uh, so, and it, it's not like the, it's not like they were boarding a British uh, man of war ship of soldiers or, or you know or sailors and fighting them. This was more like a, you know, like a, like kind of a I don't know a border patrol kind of ship that wasn't really. They weren't really armed. Their job wasn't to shoot people. It was just to enforce the law. Uh, and the majority of the time, when things like this had happened, this was this was a little bit bigger an event than most cases. But most of the time, really nothing was done. Most of these most of these events ended up going unpunished. Uh, but in this case. In 1772, the Admiralty decided that it was not going to let the destruction of one of its actual military vessels uh, on station in the colony go unpunished. So, uh, <clears throat> so they uh, uh, came down pretty hard on the uh, on these folks, and they decided that uh, through the implementation of what was called the Dockyard Act, uh, that they would take any suspects in these cases and ship them to England to be tried. And this pretty much freaked all the colonists out because how are you going to get a fair trial in England? Uh, how are you going to get witnesses? How are you going to – how is any of that going to work? And the answer is it's not going to work well because uh, – because you're thousands of miles from your home, thousands of miles from this uh this the Gaspi affair was a, a pretty serious event uh among the colonies and because of this, because of all the events leading up to it and then from the Gaspi affair and the colonists talking to each other from the thirteen colonies they decided to form what became known as Committees of Correspondence. What this did was it allowed uh, all of these communities to communicate and very rapidly spread uh, any information that they had among each, uh, with each of the colonies, with each of the, uh, with, with everybody else. So when anything went on, somebody, uh, would report it, it would get written down, it would get shipped out immediately to the other columns <clears throat> through by, by way of correspondence, by way of written correspondence. So these would be committees of correspondence. Something happened, here's what it was, here's a report on it, and we're sending it out to everybody so everybody knows and everybody can be aware of uh, of how it happened, where it happened, why we think it happened, who was involved, uh, what the ramifications could be, uh, what the results were, etc. Uh, this is uh, this really helped to strengthen the bonds between the colonies and also to raise the the awareness 
of incidents which were occurring elsewhere among the colonies. Prior to this, there could be things going on in the colonies, but because they didn't communicate directly with each other, then one colony may not be aware of what was happening to another colony, unless uh, unless uh, uh, so-and-so's uh, sister wrote a letter to him to tell him what had happened, and, and she really didn't know exactly what happened or why, but but she was telling him what she thought happened, etc. Then, uh, then they may not be aware of it. Well, this eliminated that. You know, people the people had uh, direct responsibilities to inform specific people in the other thirteen colonies about what was going on. Those specific people would then uh, disseminate that information among what would be a fledgling government, right? Uh, and this really became instrumental uh, in managing and developing the colonial response to the enforcement of things like the Tea Act and the Intolerable Act and and all of the uh, all of the uh, unpopular British colonial legislation. And the College of Massachusetts had that. Uh, a concerted action to organize themselves against the actions of the British regulars. Although, like I was telling you earlier, the, the, there were statements made about supporting Boston, uh, where the port had been closed earlier in 1774 under the Boston Port Act. And they made the statement that they would support Boston, quote, at the risk of our lives and fortunes, okay? And that at the time was no different than today. That's a very serious statement. At the risk of our lives and our fortunes, we're going to support these. Previously, they had been, they had all been independent colonies. They had all worried about themselves. They weren't that worried about other colonies, uh, other than things like, uh, uh, epidemic illnesses and stuff like that, uh, but they and trades trading with other colonies, but they weren't. They they each wanted to maintain their own independence and their own uh, individuality. But once the once the colonies began to have trouble with the government, they decided it would be much more in their favor for them to link up in some form or fashion in order to disseminate information, present uh, some type of united front for their own self-preservation. And this is where the the seeds of the fledgling government were being born. The government put pressure on the people, uh, on the individual colonies, and because of that, because the individual colonies saw what was happening to some of their uh, brother and sister colonies, they decided that they better link up and see about providing a united front. And that, this is a very, very important part of of beginning a government. 
Okay, so what happens next? Well, you had uh, General Thomas Gates. Now, he, of course, has been the the, uh, uh, the military governor of Massachusetts, and he became governor in 1774, and he was charged with the enforcement of all of the uh, all of the really uh, unpopular uh, acts, and uh, he wanted to try and prevent the out break of any type of hostilities or war to peace between the American Patriot Party, which were the Whigs, and they were the majority, and then the Loyalist Party, this was called the Tories. Uh, these were the these the the folks who were uh, remaining loyal to the crown. Not that the American Patriot Party wanted to be unloyal to the crown. They just wanted their rights. Uh, they wanted to have their rights recognized. Okay, so he was trying to keep the peace between these two parties because remember, it's not like at the time, it's not like uh, there were 50,000 stationed all throughout the colonies and that's where the troubles were happening between. That's not the case. That troubles were happening, were occurring between the colonists themselves between the folks who wanted uh, – who were advocates of their rights and the people who were advocates of of ensuring that everybody was doing exactly only what the king wanted. All right, and Gage decided that the best way to probably prevent anything serious from happening – was by staging a raid where he could secretly remove military supplies from all the storehouses and arsenals that were located uh, across New England. Uh, he wanted to keep these missions secret, uh, run them out very quickly, and his reasoning was that... <clears throat> and let me give you a, a real quick... Uh, information about this at this time in 1774 uh, the firearms were all muzzle loading firearms they were none of them were cartridge uh, firearms all of them uh, fired by way of pouring loose gunpowder uh, down the end of the muzzle and then you would put some kind of wadding in after that paper straw uh, something and then you would place the projectile <clears throat> down on top of that. And sometimes they would place a, maybe an additional piece of wadding uh, on top of the projectile to keep it from rolling back out, to keep it uh, you know, pushed tightly against the loose gunpowder. Then you would put a little bit of loose gunpowder in a little pan that was connected to the barrel but on the outside of the barrel. And this little pan would hold the loose gunpowder. And what you're trying to do is you're trying to ignite that loose gunpowder in the pan so that it would catch on fire. And whenever it flash fired, uh, it would send a small amount of flame and heat through a tiny hole in the side of the barrel. And this would, in turn, ignite the main charge of the, of the rifle, uh, of the musket, and cause the... Uh, the musket to fire. So, 
So everybody everywhere had uh, muskets. And and everybody had uh, a little bit of gunpowder. They didn't need a whole lot. They just needed just a little in case they wanted to go hunting or uh, to defend their homes from uh, from whatever. The rest of the gunpowder, they didn't keep in their house. You don't... At this time in the colonies, there was certainly no electricity. If you wanted to cook or to be able to see inside your house, uh, even in daylight, there weren't a lot of windows. Uh, you had to have a open fire, a flame, to to see, to cook, to heat yourself, everything else. You had to have an open flame. An open flame and loose gunpowder are just, they're not a great match uh, unless you're trying to blow stuff up. You did need to have a large amount of gunpowder in case in case something happened, in case there were attacks by Indians, in case there was a flare-up uh, in the troubles between the French and the British, uh, for whatever reason. You needed to have a store or supply of gunpowder because the colonists weren't manufacturing their own gunpowder at the time. So they were buying it. They were buying it in large lots. And then the powder wasn't stored in their houses or it wasn't, uh, you know, down at the store on Main Street because there were a lot of fires during this time because, like I said, everything was an open flame. Every candle, every fire, every hard fire reaches a, uh, a 20 or 30 or 100 pound uh, keg of gunpowder, there'll be a violent explosion. And uh, it just, people just didn't keep it in their residences or in the stores or anything like that. Not a lot. They, took, they established what would be called magazines or powder stores. And these would be away uh, from, the, uh, from the general population. And normally it would be almost like a uh, almost like a conical type of almost like a silo, and the uh, and it would be normally it would be windowless because you don't you don't want to, you want to try and keep it as dry as possible. There's not any reason nobody's living in there. It's for storage. You have a windowless uh, uh, like concrete building. With I mean, not concrete, uh, a windowless uh, uh, stone building with all of the kegs of gunpowder stacked inside and stored there so that uh, all of the people in that, and, and several, sometimes it was several towns that did this. They say, look, we're not going to build our own uh, magazine, gunpowder magazine. Let us just... Uh, uh, rent part of yours, and we're going to keep uh, oh, 20 of the uh, the big uh, like 50 gallon wind barrels of powder there in your storage area. And if we need it, we'll just come. We'll come and draw out uh, like half of a barrel, you know, every few months or something like that for whatever we need. So the powder was away. From populated areas, and it was usually under lock and key in a in a powder magazine. What Gage decided was that look, everybody's got these muskets, but and we're, certainly we're not going to try and go collect everybody's muskets. 
because I, people aren't going to go for that. They're going to get they're going to get upset. They use them. They use them to hunt with and to defend themselves. But what we can do is we'll go and take all the powder. <clears throat> that way, if they wanted to cause some problems, they might find it difficult because they may have uh, they may have enough powder to uh, to fire ten or fifteen shots, but after that they're going to be out. They'll be out forever because we'll have the powder. And uh, what he decided to do was to go and seize the powder, which the government uh, considered the gunpowder to be the king's powder. So they felt that, look, we can go and get it if we want to. Now the towns thought a little bit differently. They said, that's our powder, uh, and you don't have a right to take it. But what Gage did was he just set up the raid in secret. Uh, <clears throat> the uh, uh, and and there were quite a few of these, but he he started out thirty first on on that day. Gage sent the Middlesex County Sheriff David Phipps to Brattle uh, with orders to remove the provincial powder. Uh, Brattle, uh, who was the uh, uh, like the keeper of the uh, the key to the power to house, he turned the keys to the power house over to Phipps, and uh, and they let's see uh, on September first. On the August 31st, he sent uh, he sent the sheriff to over to Brattleton to get Brattle to give him the keys. Brattle gave him the keys. Then on the morning of the September 1st, uh, 260 British regulars from the 4th Regiment uh, rode in secrecy, not R-O-D-E, but R-O-W-E-D. Uh, they sailed up to the uh, uh, to Mystic River by uh, ship and got into the rowboats and rowed up the Mystic River from Boston to a landing point near Winter Hill, which is now what what's close to modern-day uh, uh, Somerville. From there, they marched uh, roughly about a mile to the Powder House, which was the, uh, which was the largest uh, powder house in Massachusetts. Phipps, who was the sheriff, he gave the king's troops the keys to the building. And uh, and like I said, they did this, they had done this in the early morning hours, in the dark. <clears throat> and, uh, and they got to the building, but it was still dark. So they had to just kind of stand around until sunrise, because nobody was going to, going to candle, uh, light a lantern, and go into the gunpowder storage house with an open flame. Uh, they just didn't. So once the, once the sun came up and they could kind of see inside the magazine by keeping the door open, they took all of the gunpowder out of the building, loaded it up, and uh, took it to the ship where they loaded it onto the ship. 
Then the uh, most of the regulars returned to Boston as they had come, but there was a small contingent which actually marched on to Cambridge where they seized two field small. Uh, I mean, we're talking about not, not we're not talking about big artillery. We're talking about something that that fires like a a golf ball size uh, uh, chunk of lead which, though, still at the time, was considered a weapon of mass destruction because it could probably, you could fire that and it would go in one side of the house and out the other with nothing to stop it. The field pieces and the powder that they seized were then taken from Boston, where the ship uh, uh, went to harbor, to the British stronghold on Castle Island, uh, which at the time was named... uh, Castle William. After the uh, American Revolutionary War started, it was uh, taken and it was renamed Fort Independence. But once this happened, uh, rumors began flying uh, all across the countryside that day. uh, And they were flying as fast as the people's feet and horses could take them. The alarm spread all the way uh, in a nonstop, rapid fashion, all the way to Connecticut. And from all over the region, people began uh, running into their homes, dropping what they were doing. They ran to their homes. They grabbed uh, their muskets and their powder and ball and uh, maybe a a handful of uh, dried meat or something, and they hit the highway. And they began uh, in huge groups heading toward Boston uh, because they were getting these rumors from people that the regulars, the regular British troops, had uh, sallied forth out of Boston and that war was at hand, that people had been killed and shot, and and that Boston was being pounded by the artillery from the ships in the, the British ships in the harbor. Just like any rumor, every time it got retold, it got bigger and bloodier and more serious. And the people were shocked. And like I said, they uh, they began to to move in mass. Uh, by the uh, uh, there is uh, there are written reports of what was happening. One of the reports talked about uh, uh, there was a person who was traveling on the road that day, and he ended up in uh, the town called Shrewsbury, which isn't far that far from Boston. He, he talks about that in the space of just 15 minutes while he was there, over 50 men had gathered who were armed. Uh, they had ready themselves. They had, during this 15 minutes, they had sent out messengers to the surrounding towns and packed up and left for Boston. By the second, uh, several thousand men uh, were beginning to group up. It's been uh, it's been reported uh, that up to 30,000 men under arms were on the roads marching toward Boston to defend the colonies. 
30,000 men under arms in just a couple of days. So this was an event which really galvanized the colonists. Uh, It was the government's attempt to seize their their ability to defend themselves. And that's a very dangerous thing. Okay? It's a very dangerous thing to try and take away a people's ability to defend themselves. Because why would you want to do that? Uh, And the only reason is because you want to be able to do things. You want to be able to act with impunity. Uh, the system of trust and balance of power is such that uh, you, the the people feel uh, they don't want to feel defenseless. They want to feel like if worse things came to worse things, they could stop the bad things from happening. If you take away their ability to stop the bad things from happening, then anything and everything becomes possible uh, in theory and in practice. So while Gage's raid on the powder house was a success in one form, he did actually seize all the powder from the largest powder storage house there, but there were plenty of others. But he seized that powder, and he did it without uh, without any trouble, without firing a shot. But it was such a grievous act to the people of the Massachusetts Bay Colonies and to all of their other 13 colonies who soon heard about it. They decided, this is never going to happen again. We are never going to be taken by surprise again. Okay? And... This led to uh, to the creation of of additional uh, events and acts. You had uh, you had the the folks in the different towns who, at this point, said, "Look, we think that things are serious enough now that." Uh, that we're going to we're going to uh, uh, to to fire up the militia. Uh, we're going to get them into training. In addition to that, because of the way that this act happened so quick and so uh, without much notice, what we're going to have to do is we're going to organize a, a third of our militias into these special companies that we call Minutemen. Uh, and the Minutemen were were kind of just that. They were uh, they were folks who uh, who would be able to respond uh, in just a few minutes. And uh, uh, it was mostly, you know, uh, younger men uh, a lot of them were younger, single men, uh, in good physical condition, uh, folks who could just uh, hop out of bed, grab their musket and their powder, 
uh, and take off uh, at a good clip and do uh, 25 or 30 miles every day. <coughs> and uh, uh, they wanted these guys to be able to very rapidly uh, come under arms and defend uh, the colonial uh, possessions and stuff so that if uh, if they heard that something like this was going on, it wouldn't be they wouldn't have to take a lot of time to get uh, the whole militia ready. They began to train and drill the Minutemen so that they say, "Look, we're gonna we want you guys to be ready at the drop of a hat to uh, you know you uh, say they've got a hundred people in their militia, you thirty five men uh, are gonna be able to meet at the corner of uh, you know of Broad Street and Grand Street." Uh, within 10 minutes of the alert, and within an hour of the alert being put out, we want you to be able to be on the road uh, doing one mile every uh, 15 minutes and uh, and to be able to do that all day long until you get to where you're supposed to be. So these were the rapid, uh, the ready reaction forces. And they began... Training the militia began having regular training. The the Minutemen uh, were organized to be in constant readiness. Uh, at the same time, they instituted uh, a system of express riders and alarms. And this is important because that is why that when the events happen at Lexington and Concord on uh, April 19, 1735, that there was such uh, such an unbelievably rapid response because because of the powder alarm, the colonists began to seriously uh, mobilize and train. They began to set up systems where if something happens, <clears throat> it's not just a uh, that we hope that the news gets out. It's that specific people were detailed to ride to specific locations uh, to disseminate the information, which would then be carried on to other specific locations, and they trained in how to do this, how they're going to do it. They're going to be trained to to set up big bonfires that uh, could be seen over great distances, to fire uh, people that had uh, it were called warning cannons and stuff like that that would fire uh, – like powder charges out of the cannons that would go booming in the in the night or the day that could be heard from miles away and warning other colonies to begin assembling. I mean, other towns to begin assembling and, and getting ready. Uh, the, uh, the former legislature of Massachusetts, which had been disbanded by Gage when he came into power, they met in defiance of the Massachusetts Government Act, which basically denied them the right to meet, uh, and they declared themselves to be the first provincial Congress, which is really a very serious moment in history. Until this point, their government uh, basically was in England. That's where all the government stuff was done, decided, etc. Now they had they had very uh, very loose forms of informal local government. Uh, but because of the uh, of the the stuff that had gone on, and then with the the powder alarm, uh, 
the uh, the folks began uh, they began building the uh, their own government. Uh, this first provincial congress created what's known as a committee of safety. And this was modeled after the uh, after the same kind of organization uh, that had that had run English Civil War. Uh, military stockpiles, military stores were. Uh, it was determined that they were going to be stockpiled away from the coast. Uh, that way, the British regulars couldn't just. Uh, get on a ship and suddenly appear uh, on the coast where the stockpiles were uh, march in the middle of the night and seize it. Uh, they wanted to make sure that anytime they had any military stockpiles, food, powder, arms, whatever it was, that the regulars would be forced to march uh, a much greater distance, which would help to alert everybody. They couldn't just do it conveniently in a few hours at nighttime to be a long march, they would also be done during the day where they could be observed and warnings could be sent out. And not only that, but remember, if you march 10 miles one way, you're going to have to march 10 miles back the other way. So, the largest of the stockpiles that they they set up were located at uh, Concord and uh, Worcester. Uh, There was... uh, there were several more attempts by Gage to seize powder. However, none of these attempts were uh, successful. After the initial one, like I said, the colonists decided uh, they weren't going to let that happen again. And they had spies everywhere. They had, they had spies listening everywhere and reporting everything to the Committee of Safety. The Committee of Safety reported it to the Committee of Correspondence, which disseminated the information. Uh, <clears throat> during the during the next uh, the next uh, the next few months, there were so many people listening everywhere that the the British officers felt the only way. They could have a conversation which wasn't going to be listened to by somebody and reported was for them to, uh, this is at least in Boston, was for them to walk out to the end of the pier, at the end of the wharf there in Boston Harbor, uh, which was several hundred yards, so that they were standing out in the middle of the bay and they could see that nobody was standing next to them. That was the only way they felt they could have a secure conversation. Uh, In uh, December, the British military command decided to prohibit the export of arms and powder to North America. They weren't going to allow any more arms or powder to be sent into the colonies. Not only that, but all the remaining stores were to be secured. That means that uh, Gage had plans that uh, 
not only were they not going to get any more shipments, but the stuff that was already there, all the rest of the powder magazines and stuff like that, he was going to send troops out to seize them. On December 12th, there was uh, intelligence that had been received by Paul Revere, which indicated that there was uh, that a seizure of stores at uh, Fort William and Mary in Portsmouth was imminent. Now, he rode from Boston to Portsmouth the next day to notify the, the local patrons. And he did this uh, in the middle of a snowstorm. Uh, the Patriots very rapidly assembled. They raided the fort and took all of the supplies. But Revere's intelligence had actually been not quite correct. Although there had been a British operation that had been contemplated and talked about, there the there had never really been, had never been ordered. There had never been any actual uh, orders for them to do it. <clears throat> now, the, the, the British did eventually send ships uh, carrying troops to Portsmouth, but they arrived a, a long time after the event. The first uh, ships to arrive there were on the 17th, uh, which was uh, almost a week after uh the fort had been uh, raided, and and the first ship to arrive uh, had a pilot on board, and the pilot's a local guy who says, yeah, go here, go there. Uh, he directed the ship to a shallow area at high tide, uh, and uh, that grounded the ship. That pretty much, you know, put an end to that ship's movement because they hit the shallows at high tide which meant no no tide was going to come down and lift them off of it, and they were stuck there. Uh, the uh, the stores of gunpowder around the uh, around the New England, uh, which were called by different names by different people. You know, we talked earlier about the Tories and the Whigs. The Tories, the loyalists, referred to these gunpowders. Uh, as the king's powder, and uh, the Whigs, the Patriot, American Patriots, called it the militia's powder, and uh, they decided they were going to carry off the militia powder, and they did from uh, almost all of the uh, the storage areas and all of the forts in Newport, Rhode Island, Providence, uh, New London, Connecticut. And once they had taken them from the military fort, then they were distributed uh, to the militias in the towns uh, that were well away from the coast, uh, including uh, uh, all of the cannons and uh, all of the flints and lead and ball and all the rest of the stuff that was stored in Boston. They loaded it up and got it out of town. Uh, on February 27th, 1775, uh, Gage ordered his uh, his navy in the form of the HMS Lively to uh, sail to Salem, and it took uh, about a 240 British regulars from the 64th Regiment, uh, being commanded by Colonel Alexander Leslie, and they were to sail uh, to uh, right outside Salem, and then march to Salem and seize the cannon and supplies there in Salem. Now, the most of all the stuff had already been removed, and some of it had been hidden there in town, but 
as the troops were marching into town, they wanted to go to this, this one area and search it, but the local people, there was a drawbridge over the over the little tributary there, the local people raised the drawbridge. Of course, the drawbridge is a bridge that can be raised and lowered to allow ships with sails and with masts and stuff to, to pass. They raised the drawbridge so that the troops couldn't cross. Commander, Colonel Leslie, demanded that they put the drawbridge down so he could cross, but instead, they just heckled him. They just called the soldiers names, they yelled at them, uh, they dared them to shoot at them. And of course, Leslie couldn't just start shooting people at that point. There weren't open hostilities at this point, and and of course, he he had no orders to engage in any type of combat. He was simply to go there and seize the powder and stores. Now, if he were confronted by armed patriots, then he would have to act in accordance to uh, whatever the situation demanded. But he wasn't. Uh, there was just unarmed people who raised the drawbridge and were were heckling him. He could jump up and down and yell as much as he wanted to, but he couldn't do anything except stand there and wait. Now, while he was waiting, uh, word had already been set out as soon as they arrived. While he was waiting, while they were still marching to Salem, and while he was waiting, colonists from the surrounding towns began to arrive, and they were armed. So now Leslie's got a force of 260 regulars there with him, but every minute that he's standing there, more armed colonists arrive. Very rapidly was beginning to spin into a possibly dangerous situation. Now, he didn't have orders to confront anybody or to engage in any in any type of uh, violent conflict. What he was supposed to do was go and... Uh, and sees the pattern. So, so they were kind of like at a uh, at a at a standoff. And like I said, every minute that they waited, more and more armed patriots arrived. Finally, they had a meeting. They had a meeting with the, some of the town's leaders and with the, some of the clergy. And what they agreed to do was they said, "Look." Uh, I've been ordered to go and search this area right over here. And they said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to put the bridge down and let you go. As long as you promise, you're going to go straight to that area, and then you're going to turn around and go back to your ship. And Leslie didn't have any choice, any other choice. He, he, he agreed. So they put the drawbridge down. He went over there, and he searched the uh, the forge, the uh, you know, like the blacksmith area, where they had been keeping the cannons and stuff, but they already moved them before this. He searched that one area where he had been, uh, where he had been invited to search, and then he was required to turn around and leave, and he did. And of course, they were followed uh, by hundreds of people who were marching along beside them, uh, you know, heckling them and catcalling and making fun of them and everything else, and. That's a bad situation because 
it humiliated Leslie and those troops. And and you, I, you know you can only imagine that what they wanted, probably more than anything else, was to start start shooting those townspeople. And they're going to remember that probably forever. But they couldn't do anything because of the the accurate information they had received because of the system of alerts and alarms that had been set up. Gage was never ever again able to stage a successful raid. Instead, what this turned into amounted to training exercises, SDXs, field training exercises for the colonists. Gage would uh, stage a, a raid. They would attempt to do the raid. The colonist uh, intelligence gathering system would alert the people. Those people would be alerted by a system of alert writers and, and uh and warnings and systems, uh, the stuff they were going after would be moved or had already been moved, and it was a very futile and humiliating uh, operation. So basically, uh, it gained nothing for Gage and served only as training opportunities for the colonists. This whole system, the powder alarms, and the system set up to respond to and circumvent the uh, the powder alarms are the key things that set up the colonist response to the events at Lexington and Concord on April 19, uh, 1775. It's one of the main reasons that they were ready. Now, certainly earlier in history and, and even up to today, The the way that it is tried that they've tried to talk about it, where they tried to make it <clears throat> sound like a spontaneous uprising by the colonists, but it wasn't a spontaneous uprising. It, everything has been thought out and planned. All the details have been made. Uh, the special alert troops had been trained. Uh, all of this had been set up. Previous to it. So when the events of April 19th happened, it wasn't uh, thought out, well planned uh, operation. And uh, so that's why I'm saying that uh, that the powder alarms were a very important event in our nation's history. And I'm saying that. We see the same thing going on today. The events that occur <clears throat> most recently, like the shootings out on the East Coast, where you have some you have some maniac, some lunatic that commits a heinous crime as an individual, and yet everyone is made to pay and suffer for it. The government's reaction is that we will disarm the populace to prevent this from ever happening again. Do they do the same thing with lighters and matches? Because there are a lot more arsonists than there are murderers. And yet, we've yet to see them go door-to-door or propose going door-to-door 
to seize everyone's lighters and matches and electric stoves and, and, and everything else. So when they do this, when they overreact, then it causes alarm within the populace. It causes the citizens to become uh, anxious and to try to form uh, their own response. And they do this uh, in this most recent case by going out and purchasing every single bullet they can get their hands on, every firearm and every bullet they can get. How long has it been now? A couple of, uh, it's almost been two years since uh, since this started, and it's still hard to find ammunition. I don't think there's ever been any other greater event that has pushed arms and ammunition into the hands of the civilian population as as the government's reaction to the shootings. That's why I consider it to be a deadly dance of action and reaction. Uh, each side things that causes the other side distress and causes them to react in a certain way, which provokes a response from the other side. Uh, I'm going to end with uh, uh, with a letter uh, a letter from uh, uh, well, the, the guy's name is Andrew. This is part of a series of letters called Andrew's Letters. Uh, he wrote this on October 1st, 1774. It's common for the soldiers to fire at a target fixed in the stream at the bottom of the common. There was a countryman who stood by a few, day, a few days ago and laughed very heartily at a whole regiment firing and not one being able to hit it. The officer uh, running the, uh, the regiment's firing observed him and asked him why he laughed. Perhaps you'll be affronted if I tell you, replied the countryman. No, he would not, he said. Why then, says he, I laugh to see how awkward they fire. Why, I'll be bound I hit it ten times running. Oh, will you, replied the officer. Come try. Soldiers, go and bring five of the best guns and load them for this honest man. The countryman replied, why, you need not bring so many. Let me have any one that comes to hand, but I choose to load it myself. He accordingly loaded and asked the officer where he should fire. The officer replied, to the right. At which time he pulled the trigger and drove the ball uh, uh, right uh, at the target, the officer was amazed and said he could not do it again, and that was only by chance. The countryman loaded the uh, the piece again, and he asked, where shall I fire? To the left, said the officer, where he fired and he performed as well as before. Come, come, said the officer, once more. He prepared a third charge and said, where shall I fire now? In the center. He took aim, 
the ball went as exact in the middle as possible. The officers, as well as his soldiers, stared and thought the devil was in this man. Why, says the countryman, I'll tell you now. I have got a boy at home that will toss up an apple and shoot the seeds out of it as it's coming down. The country towns, in general, have chose their own officers and muster for exercise once a week. Parson, as well as the squire, stands in ranks with a firelock. That's their their musket. In particular, at Marblehead, they turn out three or four times a week when Colonel Lee, as well as the clergymen there, are not ashamed to appear in the ranks and to be taught the manual exercise in particular. <clears throat> One more anecdote, and I'll close this barren day. When the 59th Regiment came from Salem, were drawn up on each side of the neck. A remarkable tall countryman, near eight feet high, strutted between them at the head of his wagon, looking very sly and contemptuously on one side and the other, which attracted the notice of the whole regiment. Aye, aye, says he. You don't know what boys we've got in this country. I'm near nine feet high and one of the smallest among them which caused much merriment to the spectators, as well as surprise to the soldiers. Indeed, Bill, where I tell you of all the jokes and witticisms of the country people, I would have little else to do. So, the point in reading that is that the, the colonists paid a great deal of attention to their marksmanship while the British regulars did not. This, uh, when you're dealing with firearms, this makes a difference. Uh, the British regulars uh, would use the, would charge their muskets. They would, they would fire them. And what they were hoping to do was they were hoping to cause confusion and then close with and fight with their main weapon, which was the bayonet. The colonists, on the other hand, their muskets didn't have bayonets. They they didn't use them in that fashion. They used them to actually shoot things with. So they had to know how to shoot. You can't you can't bluff a a rabbit in the pot with a bayonet. You have to actually hit it. <clears throat> so having one group of folks who can shoot and then another who can't shoot as well means a great deal to the outcome of the event. All right, we'll leave you with that thought. And the reminder that uh, we're running Fundamentals of Rifle Marksmanship uh, programs uh, every month, starting in April. <clears throat> All right. Uh, I hope that uh, since this information has been of some use to everybody and... Uh, I'd like to thank everybody once again for listening. Uh, we're probably going to keep running the show at uh, 7.30. And I want to remind folks that while you're listening to the show, you've got, the, got it there open on your computer, make sure that, you are, uh, that you're clicking on the advertising. Like I said, you don't have to buy anything, uh, but the advertisers want you to look at the advertising and then make your own decision on whether you want to buy something or not. And when you do that, then we will get a portion of the revenue, and it will help us to uh, to keep uh, paying the bills and stay on the air. Okay, so make sure while you're listening to the show that you're.
clicking on uh, all of the links and uh, taking a look at the uh, the advertising from the sponsors. All right, I want to thank everybody again for listening, uh, the folks that listen tonight and the folks that are listening uh, in the archives. Like I said, we're going to keep doing the show from 7.30 to 9.30 because, uh, because it's just too hard for Sam and I both to try and make it home from our jobs in time to get on the air in time. So 7.30 to 9.30 on Thursdays will be the new time. And uh, and we're going to start adding some guests on different days, uh, probably some pre-recorded, or well, we may do them live, but we'll probably add a second uh, day to the show, uh, like a Saturday or Sunday maybe to the show, so that we can grab, so we can get in some additional information, get in some additional guests. Uh, and uh, as always, if you have any uh, anyone that you would like to see, any subjects that like you would like to hear about, be sure and uh, email me, rangescout, R-A-N-G-E-S-C-O-U-T, all one word, lowercase, at Hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S dot net. All right? On that note, I'm going to leave you, and uh, and CMD, thanks again for, uh, for being here with me. Every time I open the mic, CMD is right on the other side. He may be... Uh, Maybe a full state away, but I always feel like he's sitting in the chair right next to me. Thanks, Sam. Uh, thanks for the opportunity. And uh, we'll see you guys again uh, this next Thursday, uh, 7.30 p.m., and uh, we may have a show in between now and then. If not, we'll probably have one. Uh, uh, we'll probably add in another show uh maybe uh, on the weekend, okay? All right, God bless you all. May God guide our hands and for our cause. Good night, everybody.